Welcome to the Thought Leader Podcast. I'm Dr. Kent. And I'm Randy Baker. And on the Thought Leader Podcast, we search the world for interesting and fascinating and sometimes remarkably smart guests who are going to challenge the way you think, they're going to inform you of things that you may not have thought about, and they're going to ignite your imagination as we discuss all sorts of topics. All right, without further ado. Nice to talk with you, Guillermo. Your reputation precedes you. I just will leave some space here for you to tell us kind of what you do for a living. (laughs) Well, (laughs) what I do for a living. Uh, Right now, I am in the middle of starting my 11th startup, which I I swore I would never do any more startups. Um, But it's a venture called Humans to Venus, uh, with a long-term vision of establishing a human presence in the Venusian atmosphere, hopefully within the next 30 years. Venusian? Yeah, sorry. The Venusian Venus. is different than Venetian. So Venetian is with Venice, Venusian is with Venus. Venus, exactly. Interesting. Exactly. Okay. Uh, so that's that's kind of what I'm, I'm focused on. Before that, for the last couple of years, I've been mostly serving uh, as an independent board member on uh, company boards and doing a little bit of consulting here and there. Also I'm an advisor to uh, a few different space-focused or aerospace-focused funds, investors. So, I, yeah, I apologize for the bad joke that no one understood except for Randy who gave me a half smile. I, 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 got, leaving it. I space, got it, <laughs> Leaving space for you. But now I'll leave space for Randy since Randy uh, was also in the space industry for a little while. It's totally foreign to me uh in a fascinating way like i i when i see anything about space my eyes just i get stars in my eyes pardon the pun but i literally you're just full of puns today (laughs) (laughs) no so now i'm gonna punt over to randy oh that was terrible so guillermo let me think a little bit about the difference between mars and venus and why do you wish to go to Venus when Elon Musk wishes to go to Mars? Now, I understand you're wanting to be as far, as far away from Elon as you can be, but it's kind of an interesting idea. Well, so first of all, I'm not Elon, so that's both good and bad, I guess. No, I, th- I think for me, what's, what's really uh, been driving me is for years, well, since I was probably 11 years old, I've been fascinated by the prospect of uh, kind of like Elon making humanity a multi-planet species and, and living off planet on a permanent basis. One of the things that has always troubled me, though, over the years as I've worked in the space industry now for I don't know, 20 some odd years, is all of the ideas that we've had about going to the moon or Mars had flaws that we couldn't get past as far as long-term survivability. One of them being how to deal with radiation, and the other is how to deal with Uh, the lack of gravity, or at least less gravity than we're used to here on Earth. And while there are ways to mitigate the the radiation part, and especially on the Moon and Mars, it involves being underground, there's not much you can do about the lack of gravity. And so that always bothered me, how you deal with 38% gravity on Mars or or one-sixth gravity on the Moon. 
And then about four years plus ago, I was uh, came across some scientific papers related to Venus and, and noticed that uh, according to the current data, scientists believe that about 50 kilometers off the Venusian surface in the atmosphere, they estimate that you would experience 1G of gravity. And coincidentally, you would also still have enough atmosphere left above you that it would provide sufficient radiation protection, even though Venus is closer to the sun and has no magnetic field of its own. And on top of that, there were other fringe benefits like the atmospheric pressure is basically one atmosphere and the temperature ranges are basically near what we could withstand here on Earth. So it, it just seemed like a, a good place to look for settling or setting up shop permanently for, for humanity. Uh, I will have to say the big downside that everyone always brings up, it's not a minor downside, is the fact that the atmosphere is primarily clouds of sulfuric acid. But that's nothing that can't be overcome with technology that we have available today. And, and the atmosphere is primarily carbon dioxide, which is a problem, but also surmountable. So I am far from being a doctor, but as I understand it, lack of gravity really causes havoc on the human body. Um, so that really is a big problem. Is that correct? Or yeah, am and, I yeah, crazy? No, no, you're not crazy. And, and I'm, I'm not a doctor either, and I'm not a scientist. And, uh, but I do have a lot of friends who are astronauts and uh, have spent uh, significant amounts of time in space. And I've also talked with, or talked with a lot of astronauts and also uh, listened to a lot of interviews with astronauts including Scott Kelly, who spent a year in space. And uh, they just tell stories of every ailment that gets caused by the microgravity, even in, um, in low Earth orbit. Granted, the moon with 16% and Mars with 38%, it's probably not as bad as in low Earth orbit. But then again, uh, the record right now for continuous mission in LEO is one year, and we're talking about permanently living either on the moon or on Mars. And, and permanently living as a species also means multi-generational, which means people being born on, on these planets, or on these uh, bodies, and, and dying there and spending their entire lives there. So who knows what kind of effect lower gravity might have. So speaking of low gravity, you started out your career as a lawyer and you studied economics. How did you end up kind of going from there to the space industry and then to the bottom of the oceans and then, you know, working with startups and now back, uh, you know, aiming for Venus? I think one of the problems with looking at my life, starting with my professional career, lawyer, military officer, law school, military officer, lawyer, tech entrepreneur, is uh, it doesn't go back far enough. So I think you need to go all the way back to when I was 11 years old and I had a very distinct recurring dream of being the, the commander of the first Martian colony, right? My, my heroes back then included Captain Kirk and Jacques Cousteau, all these, these figures that were going to these extreme environments. And I, so I grew up wanting to be an astronaut. I was one of these kids who always wanted to be an astronaut and I was on track to joined NASA as an astronaut until I was 19 and my eyesight went bad. And after that, I couldn't be a, a military fighter pilot. And my whole hope of ever being an astronaut kind of went out the window. So everything that you 
just described, whether it's my law school or, or military officer or anything like that, was really kind of a, a I don't know, a, a off the beaten path kind of thing, a distraction maybe, a deviation from my lifelong dream of actually being an astronaut and going into space. So before 11, let's say you were 10, nine, eight, seven, that was another <laughs> space joke, sorry. But before the age of 11, um, what were you interested in then? I mean, what were your, you know, how did you end up at that space where you just wanted to adventure? Did you read a lot of books about it? Did you have folks around you that inspired you? What was that fertile ground you grew up in? You know, it's funny. I, I have to think a little bit more about the genesis of my psychology that led me to do all this stuff, whether it's entrepreneurial stuff or exploration stuff. So I was born in Argentina and my emigrated to the United States when I was six. So I came into the United States, got dropped into first grade, not knowing a word of English and had to learn English. Neither of my parents knew English. Neither of my parents had gone to college. And so for me, the age like six to 10 or 11 was really, from what I can remember, is really just adapting to, to this new environment and trying to fit in. I think very typical of an immigrant story in the United States, I just wanted to fit in. I just wanted to be like everybody else. And so that's mostly what I remember of those five years from like six to 11 was just trying to fit in and feeling like a, like a stranger in a strange land and learning to thrive in that kind of environment. And what did you, uh, how did you feel about the United States at that point? Were you, did you have kind of the dream sort of perspective, like, wow, this could really work? Or was it more of like, wow, this is, this is tough, this is difficult? Um, you know, it's difficult how the human mind works, especially when it comes to memories, because what I want to tell you I was thinking at the time could just be colored by what I know now, right? With, and, and looking back, I do seem to remember at the time that uh, my American friends maybe didn't work as hard as I did. And maybe in part, it was because everything already came naturally to them because they were familiar with the environment, they were familiar with the system, they spoke the language. And maybe for me, it was, you know, overcoming the fact that my parents didn't know English. I couldn't ask them for help with my homework or anything like that. And I just seemed to have to work harder. But I think also that was embedded in me from my parents. You know, they had the typical immigrant mentality where they came to the United States to give their kids a better future. And they instilled in us a work ethic to work hard and study hard and take advantage of every opportunity. And and so I think by the time I was 11, I was trying to do as much as I could in school. I was doing sports. I was taking classical piano. Like I was your classic kind of overachieving kid. But it was mostly because I was, I was um, afforded these opportunities by the fact that my parents made this huge sacrifice of bringing, bringing us to the United States. Now, that last part, I think, is part of what may be infected by the fact that I'm looking back as an adult as opposed to what I was thinking at the time. But, you know. So, Guillermo, I'm really interested in the journey from law to being entrepreneurial because a lot of people talk about practitioners of the law as being people who always say no, not people who say yes. And entrepreneurs are people who say, well, why not? So what, what was that journey looking like? Well, I think, first of all, we have to keep in mind that 
I did not go to law school to become a lawyer. In fact, that was the reason I chose the particular law school that I chose. It, it didn't really crank out practicing lawyers that much. It cranked out more PhDs and teachers and professors and judges and things like that. But so I was, I was not your typical lawyer wannabe. Also, I didn't really practice law because I went straight from law school into the Marine Corps and I served four years on active duty as a Marine officer. Um, now, e even though I did end up being a judge advocate for, for the bulk of that time, I did not go in to be a judge advocate. I went in to be an infantry officer. So for me, the Marine Corps uh, is probably the most fertile ground for me for how to become an entrepreneur and be a, an entrepreneur, especially an entrepreneurial CEO. Because the Marine Corps, being, having the mission that it has, trains its officers to operate in conditions that sound an awful lot like a startup. You know, you're making very difficult decisions. You're making them quickly. You're making them with imperfect information. You, you've got no plan, no blueprint, no anything, and you have to accomplish a mission with limited information. And that's, that's a lot of what a startup is. And so for me, it was very, it was a very natural transition. I found over the last 20 years doing the startups that I've done and advising the startups and working with, with entrepreneurs, I find myself relying so much on, this, on all the skills and, and knowledge that I gained just from my four years of active duty in the Marine Corps. With 11 startups under your belt, which was your favorite? Well, you know you can't ask an entrepreneur their favorite startup because that's like asking a, a, a parent which is their favorite child. But I think I'm probably most proud of two of them. One was in 2006, we started Space Angels Network, which was an angel investor group focused specifically on early stage space companies. And I ran that for uh, four years and then turned it over to Joe Landon, who's now an executive at Lockheed Martin. And eventually he turned it over to Chad Anderson, who really relaunched it and repositioned it uh, with his thoughts for how to, how to create it. And he really turned, and he also rebranded it, and he turned it into what it is today, which is, by many metrics, the most prolific early stage investor in space companies in the world. So I'm, I'm most proud of, of that, kind of getting that ripple started that it got to a point where it allowed somebody like Chad to, to shine with it. And then the other one that I'm uh, most proud of is in 2009. I, this is where I took a little bit of a left turn from, from space. But in, in 2009, I co-founded a company called OceanGate in Seattle, which designs, builds, and operates deep diving crude submersibles. So we can take five people down. And uh, the flagship uh, sub uh, can go as deep as 4,000 meters. And uh, my co-founder, my partner in that is still the CEO. He's been running it now for 10 years or so. Uh, and they just completed uh, a six-week expedition to the wreck of the Titanic in, in the Atlantic Ocean. Wow. And so humans, humans can go four kilometers under the ocean surface. Well, the, the deepest dives have been done to the bottom of the Marianas Trench, which is 11,000 meters, basically 35,000 feet. And that's been wow. done several times now. That's insanity. As of wow. today, there's only one sub in the world in operation that can go to that depth. It takes two people at a time. So you get a chance to go down to, um, you know, 35,000 feet below sea level. And down there, you run into 11-year-old Guillermo, kind of have a chance to hang out for a while. 
uh, you can't come up too fast. You'll get really bends, I guess. So you're down there with this 11-year-old kid. What do you have to say to him? All right. Well, for, first of all, just the technicality. The subs are pressurized at one atmosphere. So you can oh. ascend and descend as fast as you want. Uh, are you that, kidding? That's one wow. of the advantages of, of having a sub uh, as opposed to, to diving. Uh, what do I say to my 11-year-old self at the bottom of the ocean? Uh, well, first of all, it's, see, I told you you could do this, which is something that I keep telling myself even with space stuff because I'm not a scientist, I'm not an engineer, I'm not a technologist. And yet I've been fortunate enough to be able to do a lot of incredible things and meet amazing people that are much more talented than I am. And yet I've been able to, to work with them. So number one is, uh, see, I, I told you you could do it Two, You got to keep working hard. In fact, I think the, the less talented you are, the harder you have to work. And so I've had to work very, very hard. And then I think the third thing is uh, don't stop, right? It's, it's, there's always something, something new you can do, some new frontier you can go explore and some new, uh, some new adventure to go on. So that's really great. So then 11-year-old Guillermo, what does he say back to you? He probably says the same thing I thought back then, which is, you know, the average lifespan of a human being is somewhere around 80 years, and 80 years just doesn't seem like enough time to do everything that needs to get done or that can be done, and it's not enough time to go explore the many places we can go explore. It's not enough time to meet the, all the great people that are out there to, to meet, and it just doesn't seem like enough time, so don't waste it. Now, our listeners can't see you, Guillermo, and if you are in that 80-year category, you look really, really good for that. No, I assure our listeners that you are uh, significantly less than 80, but you have such a library of stories of things that you've done, things you've achieved, things that you perhaps thought were impossible but still managed to do them. The value of your story or your stories, how does that impact your position? How does that impact your your role as a startup founder? How does that impact your ability to raise investment funds? Because story is particularly important, in my opinion. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I, th I think part of it is having a track record of, like you said, doing things that at first may have seemed impossible or the track record of doing something that nobody else really thought of doing, like starting an angel investor group focused on, on space companies. But I think the, the biggest advantage to this kind of history and, and stories is the diversity of experiences. Because I think that's one thing that I found to be the most valuable. You know, decision-making is all about pattern matching against a data set. And so part of the skill is the actual pattern matching, but the other critical part is the breadth and diversity of the data points that you're pattern matching against. And I think that's one thing that's worked in my favor, or maybe I've tried working it in my favor, is, you know, I haven't spent 20, 25, 30 years just doing one thing, right? I haven't spent the entire time being a lawyer. I haven't spent the whole time being a doctor or an engineer, which is not to take away from anybody who spends an entire career being a lawyer or a doctor or an engineer. But I think the diversity of experiences that I've had has given me a 
a wide range of data sets to pattern match against. And it makes me, I think, I'd like to think a better decision maker uh, because I can, I can leverage those kinds of experiences. So we like to keep these interviews pretty short. I feel a need to um, make a reference to Astor Piazzolla here because I'm a huge fan. So if, if there's a, an analogy, we say tango is to Nuevo Tango, like the Astor Piazzolla stuff, as Mars is to Venus. How, how would you explain that? Like, how would you explain that Venus is like the new Mars? Venus is a smarter outcome. Venus is something we should be exploring. And who are you trying to get that message across to? So first of all, I, I don't know. I, I think inherent in that kind of analogy is that Mars and Venus are different. And I don't view them as different. I view them as uh, similar in that they are non-Earth destinations for the human species, right? So I would lump them all together. I'd lump Venus and Mars and the moon and orbits and hopefully someday get beyond the asteroid belt to some of the moons of Jupiter or Saturn. They're all just other destinations uh, beyond Earth. And I think that is probably one of the messages that I want to get across is it's not Venus or Mars or the moon. It's Venus and Mars and the moon. And I think I'm trying to get that message out to anybody who will listen. <laughs> and I think part of that is also the why. And, and there are a lot of different reasons for the why, but most of it, I think, is the more we continue exploring and going beyond our, our comfort zone, the better we become as individual humans and as a human species. So having been in the space industry myself for 16 years, 18 years, something like that, it didn't take long when I first became involved in space to hear everybody in the industry saying, all I want to do is get off this rock. So when you talk about Mars, Venus, all being simply destinations, it makes sense that people want to get off this rock. So how do people who want to get off this rock connect with you? I was going to maybe go back one step. I, I don't know if everybody wants to get off this rock. I think everyone has a, a, a sci-fi fantasized version of what it means to be in space, maybe mm -hmm. like Star Wars or Star Trek or something like that. Uh, I think the very few people who actually know what it takes to get off this rock, there aren't that many who actually want to go. I mean, if you visualize what it's going to be like, it's going to be dangerous, risky, uncomfortable, death, mm -hmm destruction, you know, all this stuff. So I don't know if it's everybody wants to get off this rock. But as far as uh, getting a hold of me, uh, best way is either through LinkedIn or through, I guess my email would probably be the easiest way. So if I send a letter to uh, Rural Route 1 on Venus, it probably won't get to you uh, yet. But, but it'll be waiting there for me when I get there. <laughs> nice. It's been such a pleasure chatting with you. Um, where can folks find you, like your latest projects online, websites or anything like that? Uh, the easiest way is probably my personal website. So www.sunline.com, my last name, S-O-H-N-L-E-I-N.com. I try to keep that one updated with, with everything I'm working on. It's been such a pleasure chatting, uh, just really inspiring. This has been such a wonderful conversation today. 
It was surprising, it was intriguing, it was interesting, and this is just an example of the types of guests that we have on the Thought Leader podcast, and we would love you to subscribe so you get to hear the next issue. Or you can visit our our website. Our website is thoughtpartnergroup.com, and at the top you'll see a little button that says take the assessment. In one minute, you can take the assessment and get a response from us. We'll read everyone. All right. Take care, have a good life, and we'll see you on the next one. Thank you.